0: Take them out of this ball game. Throw them out in the crowd. Bring us some true baseball knowledge back. They don't want us to ever come back. Root, root, root for real baseball. Metrics crap is so late to
1: 300 dogs to just this game welcome to the man on second part podcast on the real voices of the game productions uh, that intro was from uh, Jack McDowell uh, the former pitcher he he uh, he did that little jingle for us I'm Joe forsari your host and we're here with another exciting show and our guest is another really, really good one. I'm really excited to catch up with with this, uh, this man. He's someone I covered this, the day he basically got drafted by the then Florida Marlins longtime MLB reliever, Steve Seashack. So we're excited to have Steve on the show. After 13 seasons, Steve has retired. But before we bring Steve in, I'm going to bring Dave in, uh, David Agassino, our producer. He's going to make a couple of announcements for us.
2: Yeah, just to our to our audience, we're uh, our 10,500 as of today subscribers, we're very fortunate to have you. We appreciate your support. I uh, want to make sure that you continue to support our shows by simply downloading, listening to, liking, and then subscribing. Please continue to send us messages throughout the week. We always pay attention to them in terms of what guests we bring on next and some of the questions we ask to them. Also, make sure you're following us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Um... Uh, the guys dragged me into Facebook about a week ago, and it's been fruitful, so Facebook has welcomed us here. And if you so choose, uh, we try to keep you guys ad-free, sponsor-free, so we're beholden to no one on this on the Real Voices of the Game production. And if you want to support the efforts that Joe's doing, he brings some great guests on. We've got another one today. Uh, please go to patreon.com. You can donate to the show, Man on Second, and it goes directly to Joe and allows him to continue to do the great work that he's been doing so far. So Joe, another another great show in store for you today. We're at episode, I believe, one hundred seven or one hundred eight around there. So we're we getting so high, I can't count anymore. I am running up fingers. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, we're moving it up. We're moving up the dial. And as you as you know, uh, Dave, and this uh, one of our missions is to raise the baseball IQ of our of our listeners, and we intend to do that today. Steve Seashack played in the big leagues, two thousand ten to two thousand twenty two. Started off with the Miami, Florida Marlins became the Miami Marlins. Traded to St. Louis in 2015. Also pitched for Seattle, Tampa Bay, the Cubs, and White Sox. So Steve got the whole Chicago experience. Um, Angels, and then last year with the Washington Nationals. And he's still Steve, 36 years old. You do 66 and a third innings last year, and you were still very good. Welcome, my friend. And and how you doing?
3: I'm doing great. Yeah. Uh, this whole retirement thing hasn't quite hit yet because spring training hasn't started. So I'm sure it's going to get interesting real quick.
1: Yeah, Steve, talk about why now. I mean, uh, one thing I like, you know, you you still have plenty in the tank. I don't know how your arm feels, but, you know, a productive year last year, a, a very productive career. Uh, why did you decide to to walk away at this point?
3: Yeah, um, it was it was hard. I've been thinking about it the past couple of years. Um, for one, uh, family is always um, you know, a priority for me. And it it's just, for me, it's difficult being away for um, extended periods of time away from my girls. I got three uh, little girls and, um, you know, I really wanted to be present more. And, you know, baseball yielded that. Like we have plenty of time in the off season um, and even during the season, but road trips, you know, became tough on them. Um, and for me too. Uh, so that was one thing. And then physically, um, physically, I just in the last year and a half, I just didn't quite feel the same. I, you know, take a lot of pride in being able to bounce back and be available every day. And, uh, I mean, (laughs) last year, it was like even early in the year when I'm fresh, if I threw like eight pitches and then pitched the next day, I felt like I, you know, threw a complete game the day before. I just didn't quite feel like my same and that kind of feel the same. That kind of continued all year long. So it showed me that, you know, bouncing back at my age and uh, the amount I've thrown, it might be a little bit more uh, challenging so between that and my hip being an issue it just all these things kind of came together and like you know what i'm just gonna call it and spend time with my family and keep them in school and in our church and kind of ride off into the sunset i guess
1: well good for you steve because that you know back in 2020 uh, after the the covid season um i had just turned 60 and baseball offered the the early retirement package which was just too inviting to to uh, say no to. And, and for similar reasons now, now I'm, I'm a grandfather uh, and a parent of two kids. And, you know, it, it does, you know, you, and I, and I felt that was the right time, you know, um, and, and that's the important thing, but I also felt I kind of left as much on my terms as I could and not really overstay my welcome. And, and I, you know, just looking at you, Steve, 710 um, and two thirds career innings, 133 saves, career 298. I mean, my friend, you had a hell of a career. Oh,
3: I appreciate it. I mean, I'm certainly blessed. Um, you know, I, I love the game of baseball. It's I never expected to pitch at this level, um, never mind even getting drafted. You know, I went to, I'm sure we'll talk about later, a small D2 school just to be a PE teacher. And next thing I know, I'm 13 seasons into Major League Baseball is just astonishing to me.
1: Yeah, and, you know, we go back because one of the good friends of our show, is Stan Meek, who I've had on several times and will continue to have Stan on. And Stan, of course, drafted you. Um, And so people know Steve's background. You know, uh, 2007, the the Marlins did pretty well in that 2007 draft, right, Stephen? I think you were the headline uh, guy they drafted that year, right? The round out of Carson Newman. And I'm joking because Steve knows because John Carlos Stanton was the second-round pick in that draft. (laughs) Uh, so talk about that. I mean, you know, Stan found you, like you say, you had Carson Newman, and there, there you were. And were you throwing under? You were throwing the sidearm back then, right? You had already made the transition, right?
3: Yeah. Well, honestly, it's just I didn't know I was throwing that uh, that low until I got to college. So I was like a low three quarter, and never watched myself pitch on video. I was just completely raw. Mm-hmm.
1: What do you think, Stan? And where? How how much do you feel the Marlins were in on you? Like you say, Carson Newman, fifth rounder, and you know you. You clearly – did you have a sense that Stan and the Marlins were, were heavy in on you? How did you kind of even see the draft in that year?
3: Yeah, I didn't actually have a sense. There, there was a lot of teams I had to fill out like my questionnaires for, and um, the Marlins weren't one of them, which is bizarre. However, one of my good friends, uh, Carson Newman, he's, a, he's another pitcher, his dad was one of the area scouts, Keith Ryman. And so I would talk to him, obviously. We were friends, and I was really close with his son. Um, and so I was hoping you know it would be great to you know have Keith be a part of that too, and sure enough, um well, long story short, the white sox I thought were going to take me, and then my name
1: came up in the draft, they passed,
3: forget who they took, and then the Marlins swiped me I think a couple of picks later
1: yeah and when when you first arrive and you see that class, I've seen Matt Dominguez was number one in the first round, you know didn't have necessarily the career that many expected, but the second round when you saw your draft class and you saw a, a 18, 19-year-old Giancarlo Stanton. What were your first thoughts when you were seeing him around? Oh, man. It, I, I was so ignorant to how talented
3: high school players could be because, you know, no disrespect to baseball where I came from. It just wasn't at that level. If you go D3, you're, you're one of the best players around. And so um, there wasn't a lot of power and stuff on the Cape. And so when I saw batting practice first time, those guys showed up a little bit later in the season. So Maddie D and uh, Stanton showed up, uh, like, three-quarters of the way through, perhaps, maybe. Um, and I saw Stanton take BP for the first time. He was 17 years old, I think, at the time. It was ridiculous. Like, I was blown away. I didn't, think,
1: I didn't know anything like that was possible from a 17-year-old. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> and, and the funny thing is, Steve, I mean, he was – Pete Carroll was at USC and was sitting in his home trying to get him to go play football at Southern Cal, which was, like, winning national titles back then. And and Stanton, you know, obviously he had basketball too. He was basically a part time baseball player. And and he and he takes the he takes the Marlins and he and he's well on his way to potentially five hundred home runs.
3: <laughs> yeah, no, no doubt. I mean, his next year in Greensboro when we were there, I think he had thirty nine home runs. As a as a teenager, <laughs> so yeah, it was just, it was it was just
1: ridiculous, just ridiculous. But you know, back in those years too, you rose fast, and and I remember hearing your name early on. You know, when when people in the front of the office they're like, "Hey, to, who to keep an eye on?" And and you're were, you were a name that was always you know mentioned, and you know, and you must have loved that. You know, you a little bit under the radar, and next thing you know, you come up, and in 2010, and you're you know, and then 2011, you're you're making your mark and you, and you were there to stay. I mean, how did you kind of build that confidence and, and get, you know, your, your career to go where you had to, you know, more than a decade in this sport?
3: I mean, I had to get my butt kicked first, honestly. Like I came in my first season in Jamestown and I threw really well. It was probably one of my best seasons, you know, ever with college between college and high school. And then the next year I was in Greensboro and I got destroyed and um, it was super humbling, uh, showed me how soft I was. And so um, that off season I took it extremely serious. and like, for now on, I'm not messing around and um, kind of kicked my butt, my own butt in the offseason. I didn't really have much guidance. And so the next year I came in, I had a great year in high A. Um, I, some, for whatever reason, I repeated high A. So I wasn't really expecting to get called up to the big leagues that year. In 2010, I repeated high A uh, for the first half of the season. Um, made it up to triple or double a sent back down then made it up towards the end of the season and uh, next thing i know we win the double a playoffs i barely pitched in the playoffs you know, i had an okay year um but I, I was confident i was feeling really really good about my stuff um still learning and then lo and behold uh, i think it was andrew miller or brett sinkbell went like a third of an inning in their start in the big leagues and they ran out of bullpen arms and Asked me how far along I was on my drive to Massachusetts from Double A <laughs> AA Jacksonville, and so quick U-turn, and next thing I know, I'm locker mates with Josh Johnson.
1: <laughs> yeah, and and there were some really good pitching back then. The Marlins had young young pitching, like you say, J.J. Josh Johnson was really you know kind of coming into his own, and and you know uh, some of the other arms. How did you, who did you learn from? Was there anybody that kind of really you know help mold you or maybe like you say you got your butt kicked but and it sounds like internally you made those calls. So anyone just kind of reinforce what they they thought they had in you and what you could could be. Um I so I always try to spend my time around guys that were gonna help help
3: me learn and get better too and and so we could compliment each other. But and when I got to big leagues I didn't know anybody really except for Burke Badenhop um who helped walk me through like one big league game my first year <laughs> after being drafted. I was just completely lost because um, I never had big league camp uh, in my debut. So I hung around Burke a lot uh, and Brian Sanchez. And uh, in 2011, when I got called up again, um, those two guys, and I watched Javi Vasquez pretty closely, um, and, th- and Ricky nalasco too, helped me just kind of feel more comfortable in the locker room and taught me how to be a big leaguer. And so I just want to surround myself around guys that worked hard um, and were gamers, and those guys were the epitome of it early on in my career.
1: Yeah, you know Burke Badenhop. He's he's active now. He's uh, working in Arizona system, and you know he, he's one of those guys has one of those real minds for for pitching. And and another guy that now he was a lower round pick than you, but you know guys like that, guys who may not have had it so easy. It's amazing how many how long their careers can be when when they figure out their role and their place in the game. You feel that's what you were able to do?
3: Yeah, I mean. I just I learned a lot from those guys because you know, sometimes guys you know get overlooked in the game and throughout the minor leagues and it's a shame but it's just the reality of it and guys that get paid more out of the draft will get more opportunities and I mean those so a lot of those guys had to go through a lot to get up to the big leagues and so obviously it takes some sort of um, mental fortitude or yeah mental fortitude to push through it and to get better every day and get better be better than the guy next to them and so. Um, I learned from those guys a lot, and also just they they cared a lot. I mean, I remember one thing that really made me feel welcome and helped me out was I was I was in the Arizona Fall League. I had a really rough outing, and um, I got a text from Sanchez, um, you know, encouraging me like, "Hey, you know, these things happen. Like now it's time to bounce back." And like he's paying attention to my stats. I'm in a fall league. Like and wasn't <laughs> after 2010, I was up to, in the big leagues for only two weeks. So to see that someone cared that much um, left a you know, great impact on me.
1: Yeah, you know, Brian, when you, you bring him up is, yeah, he was always just such an upbeat guy in the clubhouse and and just a guy that had to work for everything he got. And like you say, that's not surprising. You know, I remember I remember when uh, in 2005, when the Marlins brought out Leiter back and Beckett was already a World Series MVP from 03, you know, 05, Beckett was kind of still a big deal. And he would go when, because Leiter was his throwing in spring training was a little bit different. Than, than you know, the other guys that were in the rotation. He wasn't always throwing the A game on, you know, Roger Dean in the big field, or, you know, if he wasn't making a trip. So he was on field two a lot, you know, that backfield. And he would, you know, because Leiter was working on stuff, and Beckett was always there. There's like five people there, it's hot as anything. He's facing A-ball hitters, and Josh Beckett was there to be there for his teammate, Al Leiter, who was already a highly accomplished accomplished picture in the big leagues. And, you know, it just speaks to what the fraternity of pitchers can be like and how you guys have each other's backs.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And you never know like what kind of impact, just something as simple as what you just said, just staying back a little bit longer, uh, can leave on a, a younger player. You know, they remember that, you know, for the rest of their lives. And I know I did. So, and it left the impact on me. So you just never know.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. Talk about, let's talk about, cause people will probably be interested And you. You probably follow, like you say, you, you know, you, is how you threw your delivery, which is so natural for you, that kind of sidearm almost underhand or however you want to call it. <laughs> is that, you know, the evolution of that. And are we seeing, are we going to, is it going to just disappear? We got a couple in the big leagues, but not too many.
3: No, but the guys that are up there are absolutely filthy. Um, and I, and I enjoy watching them. When, whenever, like, a young guy comes in the game, if, if I just get done pitching, I'm in the bullpen and he's throwing sidearm, I'm, like, keyed, keyed in because I want to see what he's got, you know? <laughs> so, um, but, I mean, I get a I get a lot of uh, messages in my inbox and I try to answer as many as I can about, you know, advice, How you know, what do you got on these mechanics or do you have anything, you know, if I send you something, you mind giving me your input? Like, I, I love doing stuff like that for sidearm guys. But the thing is, is, like, like you said, it's a natural arm swap for me. So I never really dropped down on purpose. It's just I literally think in my head and thought in my head that I was throwing like a conventional pitcher until I saw myself on video. I'm like, dang, that's what I look like. And when I was in high school, like we just never did video. So I just try to mimic Derek Lowe's mechanics. It seems simple. I like his, his stuff and he's really good. And um, so I always try to copy him. And somehow I came out the way I was, so. Um, I'm not a traditional sidearm guy, but you know, I feel like I can help.
1: Yeah. But how much, I mean, you're six, six, so you have deception and you're all arms and that's what everyone would say. You're like all arms and legs. And then you had that, you know, with sink and the, the sinker and the change and, and what you were able to do in the bottom part of the zone so much, how much do you feel it worked to be a benefit for you? uh i I mean it was really it worked to be a benefit because it was really
3: deceptive um i didn't realize that as much until um when i talked to big league hitters and got their feedback in spring training games when we do like live dps and stuff like you know dude i can't see the ball out of your hand i see arms and knees and elbows flying all over the place and like all of a sudden the ball's on me because you have like crazy extension and so i was like really like that's good feedback now i know hitters can't see it as well i can be a lot more aggressive you know so little things like that helped, but um, yeah. I mean, I I wish I could say I planned
1: it all, but you know, by <laughs> God's grace, it just made me the way I am. You know, <laughs> I was I was looking at uh, your StatCast numbers before you know in my prep for this interview, um, and I noticed I think in extension you were like in a hundred percentile, like. You know, that's something I don't know is talked about enough. At least, I, I imagine among pitchers it's talked about. But, you know, from media to fan understanding. But just what that means to, you know, if you're throwing 90, it may play as 93 or whatever because your extension is, you know, so many inches or foot closer to the hitter than somebody else.
3: Yeah. And and like everything else, it kind of came naturally too. Like my, my extension when I first got called up wasn't as – it was long. Don't get me wrong. It was out there, but it wasn't like it is like this last year, for example, guys were laughing at me because I was, there there were some pitches where I was over eight feet of extension. And, um, like, how do you even do that? I'm like, on, like, I don't really know. But what I think it is, is my, I had hip surgery in 2016 and it was really bugging me. Um, and ever since then, when it hurt, I just, I'm always, if something hurts, I push harder. Like that's a great idea. I don't know, but it worked. But unfortunately, when my hip was hurting, I want to get down the mound. Like I'm going to show this hip, I can still throw, and so I'm getting down the mound harder and further. <laughs> and so eventually, it just became like a like natural, like everything else.
1: Wow, you know, our audience may not be aware. and We're going to enlighten them. Uh, back when Marlins Park opened in 2012, and Steve was, you know, cl- closing. Um, originally, Heath Bell was, but then Steve was, and remember the, the home run sculpture in center field or a little bit to left center. People were complaining that you were like, they couldn't see you and that they almost had to like make the sculpture move or something because they thought that you were in violation or so because you were so far out there that it was giving the hitters fits. Can you kind of refresh my memory on a little bit better and, and what went through your mind when you're hearing that back when the stadium was opening?
3: Well, I think that explains why I handled lefties okay, especially early (laughs) on in my career. (laughs) Because they can't, it is, it's it's true. If you're a left-handed hitter, that's what you're kind of looking at from my arm slot. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I forget who told me so when we did a live VP there or something, I don't know if it was Lomo or someone said like, man, your ball's like almost coming out of that sculpture. You know that? And so i was like, oh, that's good. Like any more <laughs> deception is great. I'm not going to complain about it. So I just never really said anything about it.
1: <laughs> yeah. It was like for for people don't know the, the, the batter's eye, they call it. It's usually, you know, a yard, large tarp type thing off in the distance where hitters, aren't seeing anything white coming at him except for a, a baseball and and Steve with his his release point was outside the realm of the batter's eye the way the the way the stadium was built so Steve was a uh, basically for our listeners he was you're almost a grounds for a grounds crew uh issue right back in year, year one <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> um, glad no one to complain then no no but you know it's fascinating because it, you know I was looking at your numbers. You know, your velo was like about ninety three back in those years, and then a year ago, I think you averaged fastball and and slide and sinker. Excuse me, were like eighty nine and change. So you still had higher, you know, K per nine. You know, uh, yet you know seventy four strikeouts in 66 and sixty six and thirteen last year. Um, so you, with your mechanics and deception, you're still able to get a lot of swing and miss.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I can, I, I mean, I'm confident I can go out there today and get outs, right? But the, the, my problem is now, especially physically, is just I'm not bouncing back. So when I'm not able to pitch consistently, that's what's been the mark of my career. is I've always prided myself on being consistent, um, I just didn't feel like I was consistent enough last year to pitch at a championship level. So I wasn't just going to mess around. I, um, when physically I didn't feel right. But yeah, I mean, the K through K for nine. I mean, that could be have a lot of things to do with um hitters changed their approach since i don't know 2016 everyone's trying to launch the ball now and <laughs> yeah. and then also too that I, I used a lot of four seamers over the last couple of years and played that to the top of the zone so it's like a rising fastball to some guys when i'm on it right and so um i use that to my advantage knowing when my sinker wasn't quite as good as it used to be
1: yeah i mean that's uh, credit to you man because as you know, <laughs> you make a mistake at 90 miles an hour to a hitter, you know, up in the zone, it gets hit a long way and you are still able to be effective there. And I just kind of take our, our listeners through because, you know, you you always, like you say, you pride yourself, you do a ton of games. And then you probably do a ton of times that you never got into the game. So what mm-hmm. was, what is that like? And kind of take, the the listener through what what that's like when you're up let's say you pitch three straight days and then you're up a fourth but you don't get in the game well you still threw x number of pitches in the bullpen and that all is charted what is that process like and and as a when you got in more as a veteran had you kind of dial it back or were you one of those guys who didn't need a lot of pitches to get ready
3: yeah um that's a great question so um my rookie season was a big wake up call. Uh, with I love Jack McKeon, but when he took over, I mean, I threw a lot, and so I want to say I threw in like fifty something games when I got called back up. So that's about um, a quarter of the season in. I got called up to the big leagues, and so in between in the games I didn't pitch, there was a ninety percent chance I was warming up just in case I needed to go in. And I think Reed Cornelius, our bullpen coach, had me hot or in the game fourteen out of sixteen game, games at one point, and so. I was toast. (laughs) I was pretty tired, which is probably why my arm slot got a little bit lower by the end of the year. But that being said, I I knew what I had to do to get ready for the next season. I wasn't going to just, you know, it's like training for a marathon. You're not just going to like run a few laps around the track and then run a marathon. Like, no, you have to be in marathon shape. So those off seasons, you know, I I would ramp up um, some of my throwing, you know, definitely strength-wise to prepare for a workload like that for the next year. And so that's kind of what I, that's why the off seasons were
1: so important to me interesting interesting and how many pitches did you normally need to get ray let's say obviously it might be different april compared to june compared to august compared to september mm-hmm. um i mean in
3: in the old stadium not many it was like a sauna yeah, it's a so, sauna
1: in there yeah you're like one yeah. pitch you're probably ready yeah
3: Ah, uh, colder days i'd prefer to get at least like in the
1: 18 to 25
3: maybe i mean that's kind of a lot for most guys but if I'm in a pinch, like the adrenaline's pumping, I can get nine pitches in and I'll get another eight out there. So I could, I could shorten my routine up. Um, if, if need be. Yeah.
1: Uh, Dave, do you have any questions for Steve?
2: Yeah. Well, I appreciate all the info, Steve. And thanks for gracing us with your presence so soon after the announcement. Um, but we, we have a lot of kids in the audience who's, they play this, you know, they're, they're all going to throwing coaches and hitting coaches and, travel elite baseball. And, you know, we're we're taking a look at the game right now and we see probably throwing has increased in terms of velocity, so to speak, but the actual art of pitching um, may not be where it should be with the young kids. What kind of advice can you give to the young kids out there in terms of, they want to be a high school pitcher, college pitcher, professional pitcher to those that are lucky enough to do it. What kind of advice could you give them in terms of their development at a young age?
3: Yeah, watch the game of baseball. I feel like nowadays um, we're playing too many video games and paying too much attention to our phones where we forget about the art of pitching, right? So if I'm a young kid, like, sure, everyone's trying to light up the computers and get their spin rates up and all that stuff. And I think there's a place for it, for sure. Like, those are great things to chase. But you need to learn how to set up hitters too. So I'm watching guys like Scherzer, Verlander, um, you know, older guys that have been around the game that, throw hard and have those numbers on those computers, but also know how to pitch. And I'm going to watch those guys just over and over again, how they set guys up, how they get through outings, how they compete and pitch longer than the guy they're facing. You know, the other starting pitcher, all those things play such a big role in your development, especially young. Cause now you're not only are you able to pitch you know, to your spin rates that hopefully gives you good feedback and stuff, but now you're learning how to compete. You know, that's the biggest thing. I think we forget how to compete, with the team across, um, across from us. And instead we're so concerned about what our spin rates were, you know, what, what, you know, how much rise we had on our fastball and all that, all that stuff, which like I said, has its place, but we need to learn how to compete again.
2: Yeah. And, and you, you mentioned something early on in, in the interview where you mentioned your daughters and spending time with family and in the church, uh, went through similar things when I decided to leave the sideline, um, you know, as a college coach Well, we've all reached a certain level in our careers because of others that have sacrificed for us or support us. Speak to that a little bit, the people around you that have supported you to get this far in your career and family, friends, uh, especially family, immediate family, wife and Um, children.
3: Yeah, man, we could do a whole podcast on this subject alone. (laughs) Um, I mean, yeah, um, you know, obviously my wife, you know, she is she's the huge reason why I was able to play as long as I had because she always had my support. You know, she was not only my counselor (laughs) when I've come home and I'm too excited or um, really down about a season with the ups and downs of the, you know, the year and um, but she'd be there for me. And then also uh, when we had our kids, I mean, that's a lot of work when, and there was two times uh, Dave, when I got traded from Miami to St. Louis was the first time that was tough. But then from Seattle to Tampa, literally, the furthest part of the country um, she had to, you know, uproot and move our family. Cause I can't do it. I have to report to the team the next morning, right. Or get on a plane the next morning, you know, things like that. I don't think um, the average fan realizes how much goes on family wise behind the scenes. So there's a huge sacrifice for my wife. Um, and then my parents, of course, like I never did the travel ball stuff other than like lo- the little league all-stars where we travel around locally and around Massachusetts and everything. Um, never did aau ball or nothing but they always had me in baseball or football or soccer always playing sports always being outdoors um and so i just loved it and uh, and it cost it still cost them a lot of money and it was a sacrifice for them to especially with their time so that's something i always appreciated and you know my grandmother and my grandfather they were immigrants from portugal um you know he he just I did masonry work. My grandma worked linens and saved, they both saved up enough money to pay for my college tuition too, which took a load off my back. Um, you know, for, and I was able to play baseball in college and I was gonna get my degree. I got my degree in physical education. Hopefully I'll never have to use it now, but, um, you know, uh, you know, the sacrifice, just their example, um, you know, taught me a lot about how I need to sacrifice for my children and those around me.
2: Yeah. That's uh, similar, similar stories. I, I do. I have one last question, Joan, and I'll, I'll turn it back to you. I, um, we couldn't be any more different in terms of physical stature. You're six six. I'm 5'10", 170 pounds. The only similarities were both from the Northeast in that regard. I was a second baseman, but I was a two-sport college athlete, played point guard in, in college as well. How, did anybody try to get you to play basketball at 6'6", even at Carson Newman being a dual-sport athlete? What kind of hooper were
3: you? <laughs> I was an average hooper. I could shoot threes, and that's it. And that's because I hit a growth spurt in high school. I didn't know how to play down low. So I always just – Reggie Miller is one of my favorite all-time athletes. Um it is my favorite all-time athlete. Uh, I'm a Celtics fan. I just loved his game and how he shot. And So I always try to choose number 31. didn't know if you know that, uh, Joe. I was 31 with the you, Marlins. You
1: have my Reggie Miller book that I wrote. That's right. That's right. Yeah, so you did, <laughs> did. I for yeah. you or something like totally. that. Totally. <laughs> so like
3: I I was a huge fan of this the the art of shooting. Right. And so um yeah, I but that's all I could do. I was like they called me Bambi cuz I was like a newborn deer running around the basketball court. I was just so tall and lanky and just so clumsy. Um and so when I got to college, um coach Griff, you know, and coach Accord whipped me in, into shape and I'd never lifted or ran or nothing and I became twice the basketball player like um, I, I didn't even touch a basketball my, you know, first, I don't know, in the wintertime in my freshman year in college and became like a way better basketball player just based on like <laughs> the agility work and running and lifting we had to do. And um and then, so some of the guys on the basketball team tried to get me to play one time when I was playing a pickup game with them. I was like, no, nah, I'm way too tied up with, with
2: baseball. Yeah. Griff, Griff runs a tight ship. And la- last one, I'm sorry. I lied, Joe. I've got <laughs> one more. As far as, uh, the experience with Carson Newman and, and Coach Tom Griffin—I've had some experience with him as well. One of my favorite college coaches in the country, regardless of level. In my mind, gosh, if an um, MLB team ever got down there and saw him, he should be snatched up as a catching coordinator for somebody. Uh, he's, he's just phenomenal. He's worked with my son Tanner mm-hmm. already. But talk a little bit about that experience with Griff, at Carson Newman, and the, and the university itself.
3: I mean, it was—it was the best. Like I, I, we talk all the time, and I—I I owe Griff, you know, so much. Uh, I learned a lot about life more than baseball there with him and how to be a man. And I was, I was so immature, I guess to some degree I still am, but back then I was just so immature, <laughs> just insecure with, I was just, all I knew was sports. You know what I mean? And didn't know how to, um, I, I basically just learned how to basic, you know, live on my own, coming from Massachusetts to Tennessee that far away from my parents as an only child was a big step. And, um, I didn't say much when I was there. I have a lot more to say now because I was just soaking in, taking in so much and learning and um, just trying to grow as a young man. Um, And Coach Griff was trying to pour into each and every one of us. And he ran a tight ship and I'm sure he does, you know, he still does to this day. He might've loosened up a little bit now. We get on about that, but it was a tight ship. I needed that discipline though. A lot of us did. And so I really appreciated that. And I grew a lot because of that discipline that he instilled in us.
2: I've never seen him without shin guards on, Steve. He always had <laughs> Yeah. Uh, the one thing that I loved, I loved the whole experience up there with him, and he and I got to know each other fairly well and really respect him as a coach and as a man. But at the end of camp, he shook every young man's hand, firmly looked him in the eye and thanked him for coming to camp. And to me, that was all the stuff that got reinforced there baseball-wise. That was the lesson as a dad that I walked away with. and so that That resonated with my son the most.
3: Oh, that's, that's awesome. Yeah. Sim- in a similar way. So uh, I, I was a really quiet, shy kid, a shy kid. And, um, my freshman year, I think his dad passed away. And so he gave us this speech about how we need to, you know, love our parents and make sure when you talk to your dad, you tell him you love him every day. I'm like, man, I don't really do that. Like I should. And so I always made it a point to tell my mom and dad after that day that, you know, I love them and I'm just you know, thankful for everything they've done. And I just didn't want to, you know, you just never know. So meant a lot.
2: No, I think it's great advice. Joe, sorry, I always take no, your No,
1: no, that that's awesome stuff and you know, Steve hit on a couple of things for our audience and those who want to get into this game, whether you're media like my way or how I got in or or Steve being a player or Dave as a coach and a player. I think the common thread we all have, guys, is a passion for the sport that it becomes part of our lifestyle and there are sacrifices no doubt, no doubt. Uh, you know, that like Steve noted, but the rewards are, are so great too. And, and it's, you know, important that these stories are shared to, to kind of let people know it isn't easy. It's sacrifice, but again, the rewards are really good. Steve, you also noted on something in, in your answer to Dave too on in competing. And, um, and I think that's a really excellent point. Cause I think that's probably as much of a separator for relievers as any position on a baseball field. And I recall kind of like when you kind of took over the the closer role we were in San Francisco, and you probably remember it uh entering Heath Bell was struggling, you come in, I believe his bases loaded and maybe even the eighth inning and and you got like either a five or six out save and just kind of struck out like the side in a very hostile place to play and any doubts about your competitiveness <laughs> were you know if anyone had it before you you kind of rose to that and Kind of speak to that aspect. First of all, if my memory is right on the game and um, and just that aspect of the sport.
3: Yeah, I mean, um, a lot of that, I don't know, I want to say a lot of that came from just growing up in the Northeast, just kind of, I don't know, I feel like guys up there just play the game with a chip on their shoulder because we don't have as long of seasons and people don't think we can, you know, we're that good up there. And so I kind of, in, and in early on in my career, I kind of took a little bit of pride in that. And I'm, I was probably wrong with that assessment, but that's just what I was telling myself. But as I got on um, later in my career, um, you know, I became a, a Christian, and one of the commands I uh, always carried with me is Colossians three twenty three: "With whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as you're working to the Lord and not for men." And so for me, it was a biblical command to: I need to give everything I have in this moment um, for the glory of God, and um, so I didn't want to fall short on that, and so it gave me, uh, you know, a pretty incredible drive. Um, And with that, you know, if I'm given everything I possibly have, then my teammates are rest assured they're getting they know they're getting everything I got. Um, So that was one thing. And then also off that is other people's stats are on the line. And so if I'm not uh, preparing properly or training properly, I'm cutting corners and stuff like that or not competing like I should out there on the field. Other other players um, numbers that could cost them a win if I'm not locked in. Um, there I could cash in their runs. Um, someone may have to come in after me and get sent down the next day. You know how that works. Like, yeah, uh, there's a lot behind the scenes that are on the line, as just, even more than a win in the game. Um, and so I really took my training and stuff seriously because of that. I didn't want to be a reason for someone else's, you know, getting sent down or, you know, um, costing them, like I said, a win or anything. So. And that was the other thing. But three, obviously, there's no better feeling at the end of the day after I say all that to put together a win as a team because it's such a grind and it's so hard to do at that level that you just take. It's just a tremendous joy to come in the locker room afterwards, you know, high five everyone after the game, too, and just enjoy that win for the moment. And then when you wake up, you're back at it the next day. And for me, it was just a thrill to be able to do that every day.
1: No, that, those are great points, and I think they kind of get glossed over because I do think a lot of the sport is packaged today on numbers and on bottom line without necessarily knowing the team aspect of it. You know, I, I'm always – you know, you, you could always tell a team player. Play, the players can tell the team players, right? Yeah, I mean – I mean, you guys are pretty – You can tell, pretty, you can tell when guys
3: – I mean, that's what makes – You know, having good veterans on a team is so good because you got a young guy that's starting to feel good. He starts, you know, tasting himself a little bit, feeling himself. It's like, all right, guy, you you know, this game was going to humble you. You need to slow down because what happens is those guys get comfortable and they start slacking off a little bit, thinking they're invincible. And All of a sudden they get humbled really quick because the game doesn't owe anything for you. It's going to it's going to humble you. So um, that's where good veterans come in. That kind of helps steer those guys the right way.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's it's all there's so all the parts. That's why I always say people, you know, you always hear a lot of talk. Oh, chemistry is overrated. comments and I would always tell people you could use the word chemistry. I could call it fitting parts. It, it just has to, however it is, personalities during the the course of the game and getting those twenty seven outs and winning that game. The parts have to fit, whether you want to use the word chemistry or whatnot. But everyone's role has to be in place, and you're you're you 're just exemplifying right what you're just saying yeah that's true I mean the, the my favorite teams I've been on are
3: the most successful teams and also um you know ones that were we were uh, we had a good group of guys that would push each other for sure they had good leadership
1: yeah hey let, let's kind of take it to uh kind of the here and now uh we got uh, you know the it's kind of weird Steve. this the this season this spring training is really going to be the first time baseball is kind of normal in terms of off-season preparation everything since 19 spring training right because 2020 we had COVID you know lop uh, the final two weeks of spring 21 you know the you know it was uh, still kind of protocols were in place we didn't know exactly how it's going to look with fans and whatnot and then last year the lockout impacted the start of spring training and now this year I think we're going to possibly see baseball be look as normal as it has probably since 19 do you agree
3: yeah i think so i mean last last year was weird like you said because we were delayed we're trying to figure out um you know the whole cba and stuff like that but um yeah i mean i'm, I'm excited for the guys because um while i'm around cressy sports performance down here i haven't gone in as much as I typically do cuz I'm not training anymore but you know, I'm just hearing reports like guys are getting after it and they're ready to go and it's it's fun to see because guys were ready to go at the normal time last year but like we had to figure out the whole labor part so I think it was it was tough on those tough on a lot of guys cuz they wanted to get going but um, especially guys that aren't in a gym and able to throw to hitters so all these guys are going to be on they're going to be able to get in their routine and uh, get their work done like normal uh, finally you know after what 3 years now
1: yeah. <laughs> I also think it probably worked a little bit to the pitcher's advantage last year, you know, because pitchers could throw more regularly than hitters can get timed up, which I think. So I think that and and the shifting could kind of sway it a little bit to the, the hitters this spring and early earlier on than than maybe in the last few years. Yep. Yeah. Uh, can I ask you a question? How do you feel yep. about the shift? Um, we had, we had, um, Nick Green on a a couple of months ago and he noted something that I hadn't even thought about. He was, he didn't want, he said, okay, if you want me on this side of the infield, fine, but don't tell me I have to have both feet on the dirt. He felt that the the infielder should have at least be able to go in the grass. So I find that a different, you know, I'm probably, I'm not crazy about getting away with it or or doing away with it because I don't usually like the legislative part of it, but, um, I think we're going to see a little bit more of the Perry Hill way, meaning mm-hmm. the infielders are going to now remember bone would have uh, the pegs in the field and the second baseman and the shortstop would be shifted around in that, in that little space. I think we're going to see that now. And uh, um, I don't think it's going to dramatically move the numbers up on, on ground balls, but as a ground ball pitcher yourself, uh, how do you think it would have played for you if you still played you know, this year? I mean, I, uh, especially with ben, uh, lefties, I benefited from the shift. I feel
3: like for the mo- for the most part, um, so I'd be heartbroken if I, <laughs> if I was pitching. <laughs> there's not some help over there, but I kind of like it better if I'm being honest. Um, at first, I didn't I'm like. You should be able to play wherever you want. Hitters need to make an adjustment. Um, but I was listening to Cody Dellinger talk yesterday. He was at like a Cubs thing with Ian Happ, um, and uh, he's like, "Look, your whole life, like these are where the position players have been playing. And all of a sudden, you know, you have guys shifted over here." And so I'm thinking, I'm like, man, that never considered the mental side, like of what these guys are thinking about. I never considered it, you know, it's, it's after hitting and uh, getting some at bats, like I, I'm like, wow, hitting is the hardest thing in the world to do. And so when it, when it's that hard to hit and all of a sudden mentally, you're like, oh, I can't hit it over there. This is where I usually hit. That side of the field, and you're, you know, I feel like it's more of a mental thing. It might actually loosen guys up, and you're gonna see a lot more offense and balls finding the holes, and it'll be more exciting to watch.
1: Yeah. Do you agree though with with Nick Green's assessment that if you're gonna keep a second baseman or shortstop there, why can't be he be a foot in the grass? So that yeah, that's
3: what I meant to get to too. Yeah, I do yeah. agree with that. So I could see both sides. That's what that's what I meant to say is yeah. what Bellinger and Green were saying. Are I think if you combine the two of those, like. No shift, but you can still play. You know, back in the grass. I think I think that's great.
1: Yeah, yeah. Dave, jump in.
2: Yeah, I, I'll tell you what. As a, I was a second baseman, and when pitchers were behind in the count, two zero, three one, even two one, and there was a big lefty up, you bet your rear end that my 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 legs were at least two to three big steps on that right field grass. Good <laughs> that, that thing gets on you in a hurry, and you want range. Um, you know they're going to get ahead of the ball. This thing that I was most offended by with the shift, I thought it got over, you know, overused. But I wish that the hitters had forced the shift back rather than have to be legislated by somebody to shift it back. You know, somebody's shifting your way over, professional hitters again. Now you're talking to a switch hitter who I I used to go the other, move the ball the other way, move it around the ground. So I was more of a contact guy. I just couldn't believe that guys didn't bunt more or hit the ball the other way. That 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 baffled me beyond belief. That that professional hitters wouldn't have forced the shift back. I would have have been offended by it as a hitter if legislation had said, say, okay, you guys can't hit the pitcher, so now we're going to move you back. And my other thing was as a second baseman, Now I was a small guy. I was a good defensive player. I'm excited to see the athleticism back in the game now at that second base position where Mm. I saw it trending more towards the hitter, maybe not so much a a great glove guy, but uh, I'm, I'm excited to see second base turn back into second base defensively.
3: No, that's great. Yeah, you know when you say that, I was thinking we we used to talk about it in the bullpen, like why isn't this guy just go backside one time because they're gonna have to respect it. It's like, like back to three point shooting. If you're a pure three point shooter, every now and then you're gonna drive to the hole to respect that part of your game. It's like, um, no, just hit it backside a couple of times, you know. And but the thing is, teams are will willing to yield up a single instead of giving up a long ball to those power lefties. So those power lefties are getting paid to launch. So it's it's tough. Like I mean.
1: I get I get kind of both sides, but you know, I know what you're saying, Steve. Let me Steve, Let me ask you this because I, I asked Joe a spot of this a couple of weeks ago about with with the shift. You know, assumingly, you know, going away. Do you think the pitchers who obviously pitch to points of the zone to try to get a hitter to hit the ball into the shift will change how they attack the hitter? Um, I don't think so
3: because because <laughs> I feel like. That's like super advanced. I don't know. That might be like Verlander Scherzer level advanced. But like most guys are either pitching to their stuff. They don't want to pitch to a scouting report, which I think is kind of crazy. Or um, they are pitching to the scouting report. So um, I don't don't know if guys will necessarily not throw a certain pitch because they're afraid it's going to get pulled through the hole. I think they're going to attack hitters the way they know how to at the end of the day.
1: Okay. So you, you agree you think they should pitch to the scouting report?
3: I do, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, of course, you got your, you know, guys like I don't know Liam Hendricks, who's a closer. He's not going to pitch you a scouting report because you can blow the doors off everybody, and that's yeah. nasty stuff. But you know, the the other, you know, eighty five percent of the guys out there probably should
1: start paying a little bit more attention to what hitters' weaknesses are, for sure. So you think the scouting report's going to be more important than ever? I would think now if they don't have that extra fielder there. I think so. Yeah. That's interesting perspective. Now you know that somebody like Tampa Bay is going to come up with the left fielder is going to be playing short with the shortstop, and you're, you know, they'll get burned by an inside or park homer or triple on a routine fly ball to an open area. But you know somebody like that's going to figure out how to get the extra man on the. That's that's going to be the other curious part.
3: <laughs> it's like the Joe Maddenism. He he'd yeah. be king of that, but he always found a way to make it work. So. <laughs>
1: Because I guess you can't technically have the glove, right? I mean, you you, you just can't – I don't – I didn't think the rule was you can't have three on one side. I think it was just your second baseman or shortstop or whatever. Your right side of the infield couldn't be on the left side of the infield. But um, – yeah. so that that's going to be interesting. The other thing, Steve, I, I was at the Arizona Fall League for a week, and they, they had the, the ship. It was kind of cool because it was the first, you know, time that – you saw what the rules in the big leagues are going to look like the pitch clock, uh, the no shift. And I noticed like for, you know, heavy pull guys could be a right-handed hitter or a left. That second baseman, let's say for a righty was basically a foot away from, you know, crossing the line was right up the middle to try to take that away. And the vice versa, the lefty, the shortstops, so, and you know, as much up the middle as you keep, could be without crossing over, but what was happening was that ground ball, if it was 90 miles an hour, you know, cause they were, they did have exit velo at chase field. When I saw some of those foley games that 85, 90 mile an hour grounder was a base hip. Now, yeah. you know, if it's up the middle because the guy just couldn't reach it.
3: Well, like Dave said, you're going to see who the athletic second baseman or even shortstops are now in today's game. You're gonna see how good they really are.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating stuff. Um, we're kind of getting to the end, uh, Steve, one last thing for me. Dave may have one, but hey, any ideas or any thoughts of uh, of staying in the game in in some capacity after you go from being the dad and staying home, and mm-hmm. the family wants you out of the house? You you you're considering <laughs> you know coaching or you know something in the front office or or an agency or anything? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, obviously, this first
3: year is. I mean, after talking with you guys right now, I'm fired up. I want to go coach something right now. I want to get out there and <laughs> no, but like seriously, I, I would, I would, I would definitely consider it and enjoy it someday. You know, this first year, I'm I'm really just trying to soak it all in and um, enjoy this time as a family. But somewhere down the road, I'd love to, in some capacity, help you know younger guys, you know, get to that next level and. Um, What I'm going to do is I'm going to actually start going to Cresty Sports Performance and shadowing some of the pitching coaches there, seeing how they develop pitchers, the biomechanics stuff that they go through and walk guys through, um, all the numbers that we were joking around about earlier. I kind of want to learn more about that stuff and get a better feel for it, to be able to be that buffer, to be able to understand the numbers, but also help guys learn how to compete um, and actually pitch. So um, that's something that would be a a passion of mine, I think, someday, and uh, hopefully you can do it.
1: Oh, uh, you could do anything in this sport you wanted to, and it's Steve. I, I really appreciate you, uh, you coming on and being our guest today, and you know, and, and just to congratulate you on a remarkable career. And I'm happy that I was uh, able to cover you back when you when it all started, and um, you know, you know, obviously you made South Florida home. You're in that Jupiter area, and it's just, you know, baseball is just kind of the culture in that in that county i really enjoy spring training and being up there and hope to bump into you the you know in spring training or something like that but um but we're going to get out of here in a minute dave you want to come in anything last for for steve and you can tell everyone the final thoughts as we get out of here
2: yeah just no steve thanks so much total class act you can see how and why you were so successful as a professional athlete but uh, I think your journey is just beginning. I mean, you're going to be even more successful in your next phase and, but don't be surprised when, when playoff time starts getting around and teams are hunting for, (laughs) for levers. your phone doesn't start ringing. So, you know that they're going to say, well, his arm's probably rested. He hasn't thrown a lot of pitches this year. Let's see if we can get him down the stretch. So um, stay strong, my friend with that, but um, no, thanks again. And we'll love to have you back sometime uh, on the show. Uh, Let us know how things are going with with your next phase and, and uh, glad you got the shout out for for your wife and your kids and your and your uh, your parents because everybody's sacrificed for us. I think it's a great message to those out there. And thanks to our audience for supporting us. T- you know, ten thousand five hundred. We're shooting right up the charts this last week, Joe. It must be Facebook, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> but we're we're uh, faithful subscribers, faithful listeners. Continue to follow us on Apple, Apple, Amazon, Spotify, Stitcher. Uh, download, listen, like, subscribe. Um, You can comment. It doesn't have to be good, uh, but comment. We love to hear all our comments. And then please go to Patreon.com. Joe Frazero, man on second, does a tremendous job. He brings in great people, does a great interview, and he gives you guys ad-free, sponsorship-free, straight content for an hour once a week. Well, sometimes twice a week, Joe, right?
1: (laughs) Yeah, this one's twice a week, and that's um, because Steve was gracious enough to do it this week. We appreciate it, buddy. Yeah, thanks for having me on, guys. Really
2: enjoyed it. So, and, and with the numbers too, I know our closing song here kind of busts on the numbers, but I agree with you, Steve. You gotta th- 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 the numbers are a part of the game. They're important. It's teaching these kids the input, how to take it in and what to do with it. I think you'll be great at it.
3: Oh, that's great. I appreciate it, guys. And, you know, hopefully someday I'll be able to do that.
2: Yeah. Yep. Go ahead, Joel. I'll let you sign us off here.
1: Okay. Yeah. And once again, um, this was uh, our Man on Second podcast on the Real Voices of the Game productions. And Steve Ciszek, our guest. Um, Great career for Steve. Thanks again for Steve. Thanks for Dave for you know doing his fine job producing this and, and a lot of programming all over the channel. And uh till next time, we are them out of here. Throw
0: them out in the crowd. Bring us some true baseball now. want us to ever come back, the root, the root, for real baseball, the Magic's crap is so lame, but it's one, two, three hundred dogs who just ruined this game.